Hello and welcome back to Purple Celebration. This is episode two. So this episode is a continuation of my podcast and video series where we talk about the celebration, the event held annually at Chanhassen in Minnesota to celebrate the life of Prince. This episode will be about day one of the celebration. Now I'm just going to run through what was on the agenda for day one for the two different tracks of attendees. So for track one, it started at 11am to 11.50 with a performance shown in the soundstage of Paisley Park showing The Time at First Avenue, October 1983. That's a seminal recording in the history of Prince's legacy and in the run-up to the Purple Rain movie. Uh, 12 till 12.45 midday, there was a museum tour part one of of the tour of Paisley Park, 12.55 to 1.40, Jesse Johnson panel interview. Amazing. You're going to love hearing about that. 1.50 to 2.35, a meal break, and then 2.45 to 3.45, Jesse Johnson would perform a concert on the soundstage at Paisley Park. Now, that's the track one of which I was a VIP attendee, and then track two starts at 5pm, so about an hour crossover there for everybody to be churned out, moved out, and the new people allowed in. So between 5 and 5.50, there was another showing of the time at First Avenue, that 1983 concert, October 83. Between 6 and 6.45, Jesse Johnson spoke again uh, on a panel interview. 6.55 to 7.40, another meal break. At 7.50 to 8.35, the museum part one again. Now this time I was a general attendee, so it wasn't quite uh, as involved as the VIP. But I'll speak more to that in a moment. And between 8.45 and 9.45, Jesse Johnson again performed. Now that's the end of my timetable at Paisley Park. Once we were done for the day there, I jumped in the car and I raced along to the Capri Theatre to see the second of two performances by Shelby J. I arrived at around 10 to uh, 11, and by about half past 11 she was finished. But that was uh, a highlight of the tour for me. Um, I'm going to just talk through all of that now. In the video, I'm going to put some timings so that you can see on YouTube where I talk about the different areas. If you're listening on the podcast, I hope you just go straight through. Uh, Don't be afraid to speed me up on your podcast listening device uh, so I might be a little bit quicker and more intelligible at 1.2 or 1.3 speed. Now let's start. Day one. The first thing that you see when you go into Paisley and you're you're led into the soundstage, you go through the open uh, entrance area with the reception desk, they lock up your phone, they put them in the yonder neoprene pouches, the magnetic clasp, so that you can't do any uh, phone calls, any recordings. Your your phones are just at the back of your mind while you're in there, which is a great thing because it it keeps everybody attentive and centred on what is going on. This is once-in-a-lifetime stuff. You don't want to ruin it by being on your phone, checking emails, what what have you. So once they they lock up your, your devices, you then walk through the atrium. Now, the atrium is a beautiful light area. Once you go past the atrium and past... uh, some rooms on the, the side, which are Prince's video editing booth. There's also Prince's uh, ground floor office, is a small office. 
you then start to head through into uh, the sound stage. So there's a small holding room which has the, the piano from uh, Rave Unto the Year 2000, that pay-per-view concert, the one with the, the lid that would come up and down on a motor. So you go through that small holding room and then you're in the sound stage. The sound stage is set up for a thousand people or what looks to be a thousand people to be able to sit down. There's a small grandstand at the back for family and, and VIPs, I would imagine. Um, VIPs in the sense of people who are guests of the estate, guests of Paisley Park, not people who have paid for VIP access on, on one of the tracks. They get to sit in the centre of the seating arrangement at the front. So the prime seating area in front of the stage is uh, cordoned off or, or restricted to just VIPs. Once we all sat down, the MC for the week was J.D. Steele of the Steels, an icon uh, and someone who was uh, featured on a lot of the recordings from the late 80s and early 90s, was in the movie Graffiti Bridge, uh, him and his siblings. So just a really great thing to, to keep it in the Prince family. Now last year it was Wally Safford who did a lot of the emceeing. Uh, this year JD would always introduce himself each day with a song and he would do a back and forth with the crowd to some of the most famous hits um, or certainly songs that he knew from his era. So that was always great fun. The first thing he showed us was uh, the time performing of First Avenue, October 1983. Now this is infamous from a recording point of view for a couple of reasons. The first is that Albert Magnoli, the director of Purple Rain, needed to see what the time looked like on film so he could have ideas about how to direct them in the movie. So this concert is deliberately put on to allow him to get some footage of. What's happened in the background is that Morris Day uh, is unhappy because Prince has fired Jam and Lewis from the time. They've gone through a few personnel changes. Jesse Johnson has had to go out and train up Paul Peterson. They've added in other members of the band to, to fill in for, for the departed members. So it's a, it's a really interesting time. Morris is basically done. He's, he's fed up with Prince. He's, he's going to hang around for the film and the movie, but he's, he's annoyed enough that he's going to step away. Now, the other reason why this is infamous is during the set list, there is a what is known as like the collection speech. And take a collection. I'll take anything. Money, phone numbers, credit cards. Your mama, you don't want to put the bitch in the head. It's your fit, I'll take it. And it's, it's a great bootleg for the humour that is, is in the performance, as well as the first time Jungle Love and The Bird, uh, The Kid, were, were all played uh, in front of a live audience. And of course, it's iconic. It's First Avenue. It's great, great footage. Um, a lot of us had heard the audio of this. Um, for those of you who are into the unreleased material, um, I direct you towards the anonymous label or free boot generation, uh, number 42 on, on FBG, and you can you can hear the soundboard of this, this recording. But there's a critical part to this recording, and it's where Morris says in the middle of this collection speech, Brother Prince played here a week or two ago, and from what they tell me, he charged $25 a head. I don't know about you, but I stayed home that night. That's just a little steep. No offense, it's just steep. I got money and everything, but I like to keep it that way. What time is it? 
It's time to put something in that hat. You know what time it is. Come on. I know you did like I would do if, it, if I was in your position. Prince, are you out there? Did you give? You took? Did you give? You know, Prince, you took, but did you give? And he's saying it in reference to Prince playing there six, seven weeks earlier, the infamous uh, Minnesota dance, where Prince does an evening as a benefit concert for them. A lot of the songs for the Purple Rain album would come from there, certainly the, the initial tracking of them. And Prince charged $25 a head. Now, he did give this money to the Minnesota Dance Company as a thank you for teaching all of the cast how to, how to perform in anticipation for the Purple Rain movie as part of the production, the pre-production. But Morris says, uh, you know, $25 is a little bit too much. You know, I've got money, but I want to keep it. Um, so I didn't go that night. Um, because he's upset with Prince for what's going on with the band, the, the sacking of, of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, uh, he comes out with this line, you know, you took, but did you give? And you could hear the, the response of the audience inside of Paisley Park, where it was like, you know, ooh, he's, he's really gone for it there. He's had a pop at Prince. So that was really great to see that to, to be able to put video to some well-known audio to my mind so that time video it shows Morris and Jerome uh, at the peak of their powers you know the the camera work didn't really pick up where they're, they're doing uh, the bird and the jungle love dance maneuvers um, but you can see that there's something electric about these guys and that once they start filming them and that film makes it into Purple Rain that they're going to be a real highlight of the movie. And you could see that Morris had an aura about him. Not a great singer. Was able to execute what Prince wanted him to uh, well enough to, to, to be the lead man of a group. But voice apart, he had everything else. Like he's a great, great front, front man. And these are great songs. I mean, this, this is proper Minneapolis funk, you know? Just great so to be able to see that was was a real pleasure then at midday we did a museum tour now the museum tours at paisley park that you would pay for if you were doing vip uh or if you were doing a, the ultimate tour or a general admission take you to different rooms um if you get to go into the studio which i believe you do on uh the vip and the ultimate tour you get to go into studio a and stand in the main recording room you don't get to go in the control room you don't get to go into the piano booth or the drum booth or the vocal booth, but you get to stand in that main 1,000 square feet room. And it's quite fantastic. Studio A, I mean, you can you can feel the history of that room uh, as you're, you're stood in there. On this museum part one of the VIP track at, uh, at Celebration, we were able to go in to Studio A and stand in the booth in the control room and it was amazing they played uh some snippets of songs to us they played uh the breakdown where somebody has overdubbed prince's vocal from mantra 2013 they've overdubbed that mantra performance onto the orchestrated backing um from the actual recording the actual record version of that um and that's really interesting to hear but to hear it in that room with the great big speakers blowing at you, um, just once in a lifetime stuff. Give me back the time, Macho. You can keep the memories.
seats laid out and they had one of the engineers and he allowed us to ask him questions. Uh, it was a young guy called Jason who was Prince's last engineer. Um, he had put fresh tape up uh, in the days before Prince passed away and that tape had been recorded on. So the, the very final recording that Prince did hours before his, his passing, maybe even minutes before his passing, is on those tapes, which is mind-blowing. Um, he was really good. He answered questions uh, from from the people about, you know, where it was to to work at Paisley, how how he worked with Prince. Um, as as much as it was interesting at the time, there was he didn't really give much away. Um, I'm sure that some stuff will come out over the years as he's he's, he's freed up to speak. Um, but at this point, he's still in the employ of of Paisley Park, uh, so he, he didn't give anything away that I, I think you know is worth sharing. It was just the, the standard, you know, yes, he was a genius. Uh, he didn't really speak much, um, but he would he would just leave me instructions and I could get a call at any time, day or night. And, you know, if he told me I wasn't working that day, then I was grateful that I could I could go about my life. Um, but interesting that it's basically the same story that people would give you 35 years ago. So the guy was just an absolute machine for recording and outputting this music. And once he had a pattern that worked for him, it didn't look to me like he deviated it for his whole life. So it was interesting to, to hear that sort of story um, in the studio itself. What was interesting is Studio A is normally off bounds, the control room is normally off bounds to attendees of the, the museum tours. But they have the Lindrum and the Oberheim synth pressed up against the window. So when you look into the control room, you can see them. This time they were out. They were, they were in the uh, room that houses the piano. Now, there's a room with a granite floor, which Prince really liked because it gave a reverb to the piano sound, made it really bright and, and airy, uh, like a natural reverb. And in that booth were the Oberheim and the Lindrum machine, the LN1. And you could really see them because through the control booth, there's like tinted windows. It's very deep glass because for soundproofing. Yet, there they were, just the other side of a piece of glass. So that was amazing. They also had some costumes, some uh, some footwear, you know, the, the boots to match the, the costume, and the guitar that matched the boots that matched the costume, or the boots and the costume that matched the guitar, whichever way you want to think of it. But it was amazing the level of detail that Prince would have all of these different outfits uh, ready to go based on which guitar he chose. So that museum tour was, was interesting. You also got to see, uh, again, the Purple Rain Room, time in the graffiti bridge and under the cherry moon room uh, and then I don't know what, what it's officially referred to but I call it like accolade hallway where there is prints represented in photos from every different year but all of his awards are in display cabinets along the wall so you've got a lot of time to just go in and take in and, and absorb again but if you've done museum visits at Paisley like 
I have uh, from previous years. There's, there's little additional that you're going to get apart from the fact that the engineer spoke and, and allowed some questions. So that was really good. Once we made it back to the soundstage area, JD Steele introduced the currents. Uh, DJ, I would, I would say, you know, one of the biggest Prince fans, certainly with a, with a public mouthpiece, um, Andreas Wenson, who does an amazing job, uh, is an excellent moderator for these interview panels um, and a real fierce and dedicated supporter of, of Prince's music. Andrea Swinchin, she wrote a book about the, the Minneapolis sound and, and what went into Minneapolis from a musical point of view before Prince created this this revolution of music that came from there. Uh, so she's really super dedicated and a, and a very intelligent person to, to be holding these interview panels. She comes up, she gives a little shout out to J.D. Steele and then she welcomes to the stage Jesse Johnson. Got copious notes about what Jesse said. Um, I need to preface all of this with a couple of things. One, Jesse said he was speaking in an enclosed environment um, and he, he spoke more freely than he normally would have because it's not going to come out. Now, that was immediately shot to pieces when he was all over the headlines the next day because the press had reported some of the things that he had said. Um, and I found, I, well, I don't want to say that it's naive of Jesse to think that it's going to stay in that room. Um, but I feel that it was such a highlight of the celebration and he spoke so honestly and virtually everything he said created the sympathy for him uh, that I don't mind retelling what I can recall from what Jesse said because, you know, I think we all should hear it. I think he's, he's a very eloquent uh, guy and he spoke absolutely heart on sleeve he spoke from his soul but he didn't speak in a very lucid or tied together way I saw him speak twice and both times he just went for it he took one question off Andrew didn't really answer the question and just said what was on his mind for 30 minutes each time now officially it's a 45 minute slot by the time people get introduced and they settle in, really, he spoke for maybe 30 minutes. But it was interesting that it was 30 minutes uninterrupted. So Andrea came out, introduced him, and asked him one question. What's it like to see yourself on that video footage that we've all just seen of the time playing at First Avenue and you'd recently joined the band? You'd had this whirlwind what did it feel like to see yourself? And Jesse just went. And 30 minutes later, he stopped talking and the interview was over. So I'm going to recount as well as I could put together from my notes what Jesse said uh, in the first of the, the, the two interviews. And then I'm going to pass through and check my notes for the second interview and see if there was anything that he added or other information that he might have, have, have given us. I'm going to refer to my notes quite a lot here. Apologies. But... Jesse was all over the place with his, his answers, so hers the best that I could piece together. So he spoke about arriving in 1981 into Minneapolis from uh, St. Louis, where he's from. Now, he saw Prince at First Avenue on what would have been the Dirty Mind tour. Um, he met Morris on the first day. Morris introduced him to Prince. On the second day, he goes to see them at the First Avenue performance. And on the third day, Prince invites him to be part of the time. 
So it's an incredible uh, turnaround. So he arrives in March 1981. By July 81, the Time album is out. So there's a massive quick alignment of the, the planets for, for Jesse to become part of the, the print camp so quickly. Uh, Jesse said that even when people ask him and he has to describe his own life, it seems to him like he's lying. You know, it's so fantastical that even he can, you know, hardly believe it now, 30, 40 years on. So he used the phrase, uh, God looks out for kids and idiots. And, you know, he must be something like that because he's been so fortunate. He's been so lucky. So that three day period again was day one. He meets Morris, meets Prince, is invited to go see them for the Dirty Mind performance. Day two, he goes to First Avenue. Day three, Prince invites him over to his house. Um, and then Jesse sort of leaves town for a little while, goes and does some other things, you know, that wrapping up his, his life. But at some point, Jesse says that he's selling a VCR, you know, the old video cassette recorder machines, the great big units, um, to Prince. And they're so expensive at the time uh, that, you know, very few people can actually afford one. But Prince has got enough money to, to buy one. Now, somehow Jesse's got one and he's selling it. Um, and Prince buys that often. Now, he doesn't say whether that's day one, two or three, but he certainly insinuated it was during that early day period. Now, he also said that when he came back into town, having left for a little while, uh, he joined a band called Enterprise, which Morris was in very, very briefly. But then Morris leaves because he's going to go and photograph Prince on the Dirty Mind tour. And he said that Morris in those days would be seen at the Dirty Mind tour. Uh, dressed in jeans, dressed in a t-shirt, as the like staff photographer for the tour, um, which I I certainly hadn't heard, and uh, it seemed to capture quite a response from the crowd that this was new info to to us fans. Um, what he said was that when he met him, when he met Prince, uh, he was in a room, and there were lots and lots of of sort of streetwise, tough men, you know, big men, you know, even like the the big six footers in in the crowd in in this this gathering as soon as prince walked in the room they all sort of became hushed and all of the street went all of the the toughness went and it was like oh you know hey prince and everyone got suddenly very square and he saw that as as certainly an indication that you know this guy must have like real importance amongst them because everybody regardless who they were was on best behavior around him he said he had a conversation that with Prince that went something along the lines of, you know, thanks for inviting me to the show. Um, uh, you must really dig Hendrix. And Prince says, you know, something along the lines of, oh, I never watch him. And Jesse, you know, uh, straight away was like, Get you never watch Hendrix. Uh, his language, not mine. Um, but Jesse straight away calls Prince out. And he's like, yeah, I'm getting out of here. Like, you don't know Hendrix, man, you know. And Prince apparently sort of looked at him bolt upright and burst out laughing. He's holding his chest, laughing so much he falls on the floor, like really theatrically laughing about this. And Jesse's kind of like, you know, I'm not getting the joke here. Is this guy taking the piss? I don't know. Um, but it seemed that Prince wasn't used to being spoken to like that. So he really dug the fact that Jesse was able to, you know, just say what was on his mind and didn't really care for, you know, this authority that Prince seemed to have amongst all the people in his, his entourage. Uh, Jesse said at the time that he was living at the, the Y, um, but he also said that when he would just walk around town, people would come up to him and say, like, you know, you must be famous. Are you related to so-and-so who's a celebrity? 
And he was like, no, you know, I don't even know who that person is. But he said there was something about the way he looked that people already assumed that he must be famous in some way. He just seemed to have a look that, that worked, you know, around uh, Minneapolis. And he said, you know, little did they know that he was staying at the Y and he'd arrived on wherever uh, bus service was around that was even cheaper than Greyhound. You know, he'd, he'd come rarely uh, with, with very little in his pocket. So that was that was funny, the way uh, he had told those stories. The, the ability for him to say, you know, get, get out of here to, to Prince was something that never really left him. And he, he enjoyed the fact that he was able to just speak to him so openly. He also spoke about Jamie Shoup, who I'm not sure is necessarily credited as a manager of Prince in the early days. Um, but certainly she's credited as being an assistant of, of sorts. But Jesse spoke very, very highly of her. Um, he spoke about listening to old demos recently. Um, and you can hear that Jesse hears Prince say something. Now, he, he said he'd, he'd like to get some guys who, who know about audio to tidy up to, so he could actually work out what Prince was saying. But it comes across real clear on the tape when Jesse replies, Get out of here. You know, I'm already wearing eyeliner and I ain't putting on no drawers. And it was just hilarious for everybody in the auditorium, you know, that um, in the soundstage at Paisley, that a little insight that has Prince pushing the boundaries and these, you know, proper heterosexual guys are just a little bit uncomfortable with the, the androgynous look that Prince is pushing them to. Um, he said that over time they became really close friends. Uh, and as Prince would go out on tour, because he had all this recording home studio set up, uh, Jesse would often live at Prince's house when Prince would go on tour, the, the various houses that he had, you know, uh, during 81, 82, 83. And he lived over there so much when Prince was not in town and recorded over there so much when Prince was in town um, that his girlfriend questioned, you know, what's going on here? What, why is this? And Jesse's response to her was, you know, well, you learn to make records and get all that studio equipment and I'll come round to your house a lot more. And that was quite funny, you know, it spoke to that these guys were so driven, you know, that it was um, it was very much music and then everything else was secondary in, in importance. And you could hear that throughout all of, of what Jesse said. Um, he said he owed a lot to Prince and Morris. Uh, when they jammed in the early days, he said that he was often overawed by the, the talent of Morris on drums and Prince on piano, guitar, wherever it might be, bass, um, because they were so accomplished. They were so in the pocket. They had that uh, understanding already. Now, at this point, Prince and Morris already would have recorded, you know, the time music, the, the music that would be the time album. So they were very, very well practiced together, as well as growing up together. He spoke a lot about how there was such segregation in music back then that because he was a rock guy and he liked rock music, um, he was completely unfamiliar with who the R&B people would be. And he said that that's not just from a listener's point of view, but also from the point of view of the music industry itself. You could have a major rock star on Warner Brothers who wouldn't know a major R&B star also signed to Warner Brothers, even if both of them had been signed for 10, 20, 30 years, because such was the segregation, different departments, different publicity different venues, their paths wouldn't cross in any way, they wouldn't overlap each other. And he brought some of this thinking with him because he was a rock guy. He had no idea who Prince was because Prince was predominantly, you know, R&B on the black music charts. So because he had no, no knowledge of him, he said he, he 
you know, was able to just come in, um, be completely comfortable with him, but also he, he just watched how this guy who was very single-minded, very capable of recording, engineering, doing everything himself and had done it. It had albums out. These albums had sold well. Um, he, he just basically looked at him as a teacher and, and he was a willing student. So he said in the early days, uh, he would start to bring songs to Prince and Prince would, would laugh and bring the rest of the band in to hear the song and would l mock the song and chastise Jesse for writing such like corny lyrics or corny music. Um, and that was, that was something that, you know, sounded quite tough of Prince to do, but Jesse was like, okay, you know, I'm, I, I took it for the simple fact that this guy knows what he's doing. So he allowed him to do that. Um, and he never took it to heart. Now, interestingly, he then said, he came up with uh, the song Bite the Beat, which had a like B-52's flavor to it. The Prince loved it. And Jesse used the words or the, the concept that it was like Prince asked you to step up to the plate and you either hit it and, you know, knock the ball for a home run or you didn't. And if you could keep hitting the ball, then the sky was the limit. He'd keep testing you, he'd keep giving you opportunities. But if you just couldn't hit the ball, then, you know, step back out the line, somebody else will have a go. And he said, like, there was no time to be worrying about, did you know something? Did you know how to do it? Could you do it technically correct? Prince didn't care for technically correct. He just said, like, you know, you'll, you'll learn it on the job. Go for it. So he spoke quite a lot about that lack of traditional rules and just step up and swing for the from the home plate. And in emphasizing that, he started to talk about uh, the way that Prince would record with, you know, these, these already admittedly expensive keyboards, but he would put them through guitar pedals, like multiple guitar pedals in order to change the, the sound that was coming out of them. Um, I believe Don Batts helped him with this, but, but Jesse spoke more to just that process as, you know, you could never reverse engineer the sound because you would never think that a guy was doing this, that he, would, he was putting that instrument with this pedal and then getting something out of it. And Prince did it deliberately so that his sound couldn't be copied. He then started to go on and talk about uh, the time when he left the Prince camp. And he said that the leaving was seen as a betrayal. Now, he, he said that he'd always agreed to come on and do three albums, and even though he wasn't being paid as much as he, he believed he should have been paid for his contribution, uh, between him and, and Jamie Shoup having and these, these conversations, uh, Jamie had really stressed to him that, you know, if he stayed for three albums, it's on Warner Brothers, it's national or even international exposure, and he'd get to learn a lot of things. It's it's like going to college, you know? So he said he was more than happy to stay and do those three albums. So the first time album was very much Morris and Prince recording it, but then they needed people to perform it in a live environment. Second album, again, is Morris and Prince in the studio making the songs, but they need people to front a band in reality. And then the third album, Ice Cream Castle, Jesse, we know, created the basic tracking of Jungle Love, and we've, we can hear that. Uh, Ice Cream Castles, also. The Bird, uh, If the Kid, these are, these are songs that Jesse takes ownership of. 
certainly the initial tracking, whether it, he's created the groove, the instrumental, and then Prince has put lyrics over them. Now, checking uh, the four that he claims, official credit, he's, he's given official credit for Jungle Love and he shares official credit for The Bird. Uh, so though, both of those he's, he's officially credited on. Um, but he claims Ice Cream Castles and If the Kid, that they're his tunes as well. And if you look at it that way, he's the bulk of that album, if that's the truth. Yet, obviously, uh, Prince had, had maintained the credit for them. So once he leaves uh, the Prince camp, um, he doesn't talk too much about the betrayal during the first session. Um, my notes for the second session have him talking more about that. But he says the after effect, and he spoke a lot about this in both sessions. He says that the record companies gave him uh, a deal. And during offering them that deal, they said, you know, can you record your own things and can you work a studio yourself? And he just lied and said yes. And then suddenly he's in the studio, he has no idea what to do, he's just winging it. He has to put his own. Um, lyrics together, he has to put his own music together, he has to engineer it himself. But he said he was happy to do that and throw himself in the, the deep end because if he failed and it was all on him and his talents, he could accept that. But if he had to refer to other people and work off of their talents and had failed, he would never have been able to forgive himself. That spoke to me, I'm sure it spoke to a lot of people in that room. Um, and it certainly echoes a sentiment, I think, that Prince probably shared the same thing. You know, it's like, I stand and fall on my own merits. Um, and Jesse was, was very appreciative that, you know, you're still working, and here we are, 2019, you know, 35 years after this sort of period. Now, he said when he left that the relationship went weird, and it seemed like Prince was out to get him. Um, he would approach publishing companies, uh, he would go to publicists, he would, he, he would go all over town trying to kickstart his solo career. And he would get deals with these people, but then the next day or a couple of days after, they'd call him back and they'd say, you know, um, we're going to have to pull out. We can't do this. Um, Prince has said that he wouldn't be happy and, you know, he's a bigger client to us than you would be. So a lot of these deals that he was striking would then be pulled away from him, you know, within a few days. So that initial euphoria would be replaced by a real cruel blow as it was uh, pulled back and, and taken away from him, uh, snatched back out of his grasp and the, the sad thing about that was you know he was he was very angry and understandably so in my opinion um, because he had he was a young father he had children to feed he had you know babies um, and that seemingly didn't matter to Prince you know he, he, he felt betrayed and he, he really wanted to make sure that, that Jesse wasn't going to work at a high level um, he spoke then about not uh, seeing Prince for a very long time um, like I say, Jesse's all over the, the timeline here. Uh, my notes are incredibly hard to, to piece together which timeline he's, he's talking about. He sort of bypasses a lot of time and then he talks about an event that happened in 2008. As you'll recall, uh, Rihanna did a performance at the Grammys, um, which had a, a performance of the time bookending her performance. So they were on stage together for, I think at that point, the first time in about 15 years. So. The time come on, uh, Jesse is a few feet in front of Jerome. Jerome's playing, playing some percussion. Now, Jesse paints the picture of the rehearsals for this. So Jesse's on his spot. Jerome is over his shoulder and a few feet behind him where he's going to be playing percussion. 
and Jesse has been told, you know, this is your mark, stay here for, for your guitar playing. Now, he hears Prince talking to Jerome, but he doesn't turn, he doesn't acknowledge, he's still deeply angry and hurt at what's gone on for all these years, where, you know, 25 years earlier, uh, Prince has basically took bread out of his, his children's mouths. So Prince asked uh, Jerome, hey, what's wrong with Jesse? Jerome's like, no, nothing, you know, Jesse's cool. Uh, Prince then asks, you know, well, why isn't he speaking to me? And Jerome basically says, oh, well, you know, maybe he hasn't seen you, maybe he didn't see you. But Jesse's version was, you know, the guy's in like a bright red suit. I can, you know, I've got periphery vision. I can, I can see him over my shoulder. Of course I know he's there. He said like, but he could have spoke to me. Why is he expecting me to speak to him? And also, the first thing I want to hear out of his mouth is an apology after everything that's gone down. Now, that was him saying, you know, he's deeply angry. He'd had no apology in 20 years. Um, that, like, the way a mother would go and grab a child that ran into the street and was almost hit by a car, and would initially be really relieved to, like, hold the child when the child is safe. But then the mother would, you know, beat the kid so much, he'd almost beat him to death, you know, for being stupid and putting themselves in that situation he said it felt like that sort of double emotion you know that you're relieved but then you're just so angry um so relieved to see him but then so angry with with the way it went down so he started to then talk about his feelings a lot more he, he spoke about um that he was heartbroken and hurt to the soul now this is exactly what the papers ran with the next day and you know my google feed blew up with Jesse Johnson said this about Prince. Um, he said that Morris, Prince and himself were as close as three heterosexual males could be. They were like brothers uh, and he felt that his relationship with Prince had a, an extra level to it because intellectually they were on the same sort of plane. They were both quick-witted, both uh, interested in art, uh, the same sort of books. So they could speak to each other on an intellectual level that, you know, maybe Morris didn't join them on. Um, they had the same interests, though. So he said, out of the three of them, like, there was an even deeper connection between him and Prince. He then started to talk a little bit about uh, that he was happy to do uh, his time in the time, because obviously he's super broke when he turns up in Minneapolis. He knows that he's got three three albums and it would open the door <laughs> He's, he's a funny guy, Jesse. I mean, like, you know, there's some real self-deprecating humour in there. But he said uh, the way that he, he, he thought of those three albums was that, yes, he wasn't going to be remunerated as fully as maybe as his contribution should be. But he likened it to, and these are his words, the old African proverb, you know the one, buy a man a fish, he eats for a day. But he teaches that man a fish and he can feed himself. <laughs> and the crowd just love that. And, you know, I think uh, Andrea had a, quite the giggle as well that I can remember because it was just uh, unexpected for him to, to phrase it that way. But very funny. He saw the culmination of those three albums is he was now able to work a studio himself. It wasn't great, but he knew what was needed to, to put the mechanics of a record into place. So he said uh, he'd been to Paisley only two times which was interesting because obviously uh, Paisley is such an integral part of the Prince legacy to us. The second time he'd been to Paisley was this celebration, Celebration 2019. 
The first time was Graffiti Bridge. So he hadn't spoken to Prince since everyone had fallen out around the 84 time. Um, he gets a phone call from, from Prince. Uh, he asks him, how did you get this number? Prince, of course, is Prince, so he just avoids that. Um, and Prince just wants to know, are you still doing the movie? Because Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are starting to say that they're not going to. Jesse was, you know, listen man, so water under the bridge, I'll do the movie, I just need to get paid. As long as I get paid, I'm happy I'm doing the movie. So he goes out to Paisley and he talked about the area just after the reception, uh, before you step into the atrium, there's a staircase that comes down from, from the upper floor. And he said, as he stepped in, Prince come round into sight at the top of the stairs. Big smile on his face. Jesse, come running down the stairs, hugs him and whispers into his ear. Uh, about time somebody else who knows how to dress got here. And uh, he says that Prince was really proud showing him round Paisley. Now, even though Paisley had been open probably a year and a half by that point, um, it was still unfinished. But, you know, he said Prince was extremely proud uh, showing him around. And he likened the inspiration all the way back to their period, 82, 81, 82, 83. And he talked about Francis Ford Coppola, the, the godfather director, had uh, a compound called uh, Zothrope. And he likened Prince's desire for a Paisley Park from that. Speaking about the celebration, he said he probably wouldn't have done it if Prince was still alive because, you know, there'd been no apology. There was no, there was no closure to that relationship while Prince was alive. But then he told a really heartbreaking uh, story about um, Prince had tried to reach out to him in the months before his passing. He said that Jesse himself said that he was on tour with D'Angelo. He was out in Wellington in New, New Zealand. Um, and he said that when he performs, he leaves all of his electronics in the hotel room. So mobile phones, uh, laptops, wherever it might be, they all just get switched off and left in the hotel room. He's being paid to do a job. He's on the other musician's time. So he goes, he does a rehearsal all day. Uh, he returns to his hotel room. And when he turns his phone on, he says there's a voicemail. Now, according to my notes, he said that it was a girl who worked for Prince. Uh, he didn't know the name of the girl. Um, but she left the message saying, Prince wants to talk to you. Um, and he said that the timing of this was just after Vanity, Denise Matthews, had died. Um, and the message read, uh, he loves you, he respects you, the people you're working with are beneath you, they want to be you, me or Morris. Now, the way I understood it, it was the girl leaving the message on Prince's behalf. Um, but he says he still has that voicemail. And that's the last communication um, that he had. And he said that he was at Paisley Park to rest his soul. He loved uh, Prince a lot. He loved he loves Morris a lot. He thinks Morris is a great drummer. He's massively underrated. That these guys are some of the greatest musicians. That Prince was insanely good. And he heard a bit of the Fox Theatre piano and a microphone performance. And he just couldn't believe the level that Prince's singing and playing was at. And he said, you know, there's only two ways that guys go. As you go, as years go by, you either lose it or you get better. And 
Prince got better. He was at the top of his game. And he feels that this is a premature passing. He felt that they should have been in rocking chairs somewhere. Because the beauty of music is that, you know, you don't have a shelf life. It's not like boxing or football or basketball where your body's going to give out on you. You know, these guys can play music till they're old. And he expected to be sitting in a rocking chair playing uh, music with him. And he likened him to Mick Jagger, uh, who, again, you know, someone who has been around for a long time, but even Mick's age, he said you can just, you can drop 25 years off of that because of the, the amount of energy the guy has. He said uh, he was there to be honest with himself. It wasn't really anger all of those years. It was that he'd been hurt to his soul. He, he wanted an apology. And if he could go back to that Grammy day in 2008, if he could go back, he'd have spoken to Prince. Prince was clearly disturbed that Jesse wasn't speaking to him at that. Um, but they were brothers. And if he could go back and he could take it back and he could speak to him again, he'd, he'd open up the dialogue at that point in time. He made mention of people speaking to him over the years where they would say to him that Prince thought Jesse was amazing, that Jesse had, you know, huge talent and that Jesse was great on guitar. But Jesse said... He never said that to me. And, you know, in both the times that he spoke, that was a real thing, you know, like, but he never praised me. And all I saw was him trying to hold me back. He said he called him when he had a number one with Sly um, later on in his career. Um, and he said uh, neither he or Prince were, were drinkers. You know, they didn't really do the alcohol thing. But when Jesse drank, he would drink uh, like a... a, a fizzy wine called Asti. So if, if champagne is the ultimate in that, what you're, you're trying to get to, the, the, the top of the flavour, you've then got Prosecco, which is quite common now uh, in, in Europe and in Britain, um, as like a, a next tier. Asti is the bottom of that tier. It's, it's just fizz that gives you a headache instantly. It's just sugar and alcohol. Um, but Prince really liked it, and he said he got a kick out of the fact that, you know, Prince would be asking for Asti if anyone ever said, would you like a drink? Oh, do you have any of that Asti? He spoke about, during his life, that Jesse didn't class things as mistakes. He said there were, were decisions made in the moment. He doesn't believe that if, if you mess up, that, you know, it's somebody else's fault or it's the influence of, of alcohol or wherever it might be. Or none of that. It's like, I made that decision. It's my mistake. I'm going to own it and move on from that. Um, and he had that mentality that given to him uh, where, you know, you just keep pushing forward. And life is just the accumulation of, of what you've, you've done. And he said uh, he doesn't go anywhere near the internet uh, because of trolls and it's not worth his time. He just doesn't care what, what people are, are typing or writing about him. He said that he was at Paisley to celebrate the things they achieved together. He said, Prince, made movies, won an Oscar, and for a black man in that time, we should never dismiss how great those things were. His catalogue is so, so good. Prince had hits, he had B-sides that the audience knew every word to, and he said nobody else in, in music has that level of back catalogue. There are people who can play lots of hits because they've had lots of hits, but the B-sides as well known as the hits, that's just crazy. He said his song, Free World, was an angry response to comp continually being compared to Prince. And one day, uh, he just settled down as 
at least he was being compared to someone who was good, someone who was uh, rich, someone who was famous, but someone who was talented. And for that reason, he started to let go of some of the, the anger at the comparison that uh, was happening. Uh, he continually spoke of healing um, by speaking of Paisley and it, how it was healing for his soul. He'd cancelled a lot of times, but because it was a closed environment, he felt that no press would report on what he was saying. Okay. Um, and what he was saying wouldn't be taken out of context. And I hope that by me reading my notes here, that I'm not ruining uh, that wish because I believe I'm keeping the context of, of what he said. He said that he can't handle fighting with someone that he loves. He can't handle being hurt by someone that he loves. And for that reason, he just walked away from the camp. And he said that he's extremely sad that Prince isn't here, uh, that the guy who made uh, all of the, the costumes, the shoes, the, the clothing that was worn in Purple Rain, the movie, and then a guy who was hugely influential in making clothing for a lot of the music industry, um, Big Axe, uh, his friend Lewis Wells, who he'd grown up with in, in Rock Island, Illinois, had recently passed, like two months before. And he said it was partly um, because of that as well that he wanted to come and, and, and speak to, to what was going on and his thoughts around Prince. He then started to make comments about uh, how he, he had daughters and, you know, like, you know, you really don't want daughters because the, they, they wear all your clothes and they eat all your food and you, this, that and the other. And he started to go off topic, but he's also running out of time. So pretty much 30 minutes at that point was up. Now, I'm just going to skip forward to my notes from the second interview that, that Jesse gave. The second time that he spoke was a few hours later, uh, and this was at 6 p.m. I'm only going to comment about things that either add to or are, are different to what he said in the first one. So he spoke about playing with the time in 1983 on the video that we've, we've just been shown at the celebration. And uh, when they said, you know, when Andrea asked him, what, what did it feel like? He, he said he really disliked that performance because that whole collection speech, they had to actually go out into the crowd and pass a hat around and collect stuff for Morris uh, as Morris was doing this stick up on, on the stage. But he said he, he walked through the crowd and, and a girl really grabbed his ass. And she must have had like fake nails or big nails. And he said, like, she really dug in, <laughs> grabbing my ass. He said it was in agony. He also confirmed that uh, there were two 24 track um, mobile recording units sent up from New York's record plant for them to, to record not only that night with the time, but also uh, the Purple Rain a few weeks earlier, several weeks earlier, that Prince had, had recorded. Uh, and they became obviously the, the Purple Rain tracks. He said that he has a version of Jungle Love that has Prince's vocal on, and that Prince sang the taste out of it. And uh, before that night, nobody had heard Morris sing Jungle Love. version of Jungle Love. He recalled that while they were out in LA one time going to a lot of clubs and doing studio work that Prince kept telling Morris and Jesse that he was going to fine, fine Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis. Now the infamous uh, how they, they 
gone to work with SOS and then they, they missed their plane back from Atlanta because of some snow. This culminates in Prince being deeply unhappy with them and they're in the band at the time. Now he'd basically said when they arrive I'm going to fine them, I'm going to charge them money. They kept hearing fine. When Jimmy Jam and Terry arrived Prince fired them. Much to the surprise of Morris and Jesse. Um, he said that he was sad that the time never got a headlining concert and he decided at that point when these guys had been fired that he was going to leave and he started making steps towards leaving. He had to rehearse uh, Paul Peterson and a few of the other guys who stepped in to cover for the time now that they were they were missing these two people and Prince had a, a building in Eden Prairie that he bought that was like a, a rehearsal building and Jesse was training these guys up to play the time numbers in one room and Prince was doing his rehearsals with the Revolution and, and uh, the other bands in the other room and because he expected the time to blow up and do a big tour he signed a solo contract but he had a one year delay into it to give him the time to go ironically and to do the time uh, tour but that tour never happened because the time disintegrated with Prince firing Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis. He said he remembers a meeting where Jerome, Jellybean, Monty and Alan Leeds all witnessed uh, Prince call a meeting that was somewhat like an intervention. <laughs> and uh, he said Prince told him to take his deal back and come and play guitar in the family. Jesse's response was, well, am I going to be writing songs? No. Am I going to be singing? No. So you just want me to play guitar? Yeah. To which Jesse said, I can't do that. You know, I have more ambition than that. I just don't want to do another round of that. His response was a little bit more aggressive. And he said, uh, Prince had a Fabergé egg that Elizabeth Taylor had given him. And he used to sit there playing with this, this Fabergé egg. So when Prince says, you know, uh, no, you're not going to sing. You're just going to play guitar. And I want you to give up your record contract. Jesse's words, his language were, you're out of your mind, you know. <laughs> and Prince was so taken aback, he dropped the Fabergé egg. And he's like, you've made me break my egg. And he's like, fuck your egg. <laughs> and he, he said it, it made him think of uh, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was doing stand-up at that time where he said, that the more angry you get, the higher pitched your voice actually goes, but the quieter you get. You know, you don't get like angry like they get angry on TV. And he said it was amazing that, you know, He'd, he'd never really put two and two together, but the, he was exactly like Richard Pryor had described. And uh, he said it was it was uh, basically the, the start of the end then, um, and he went his separate ways. He was skitting around again with the timeline as things as things came into his memory. He would talk about them. He'd then skip back to a time where they were in Sausalito in California, and Prince was reading the original script to him of what would become Purple Rain, and he said that. That script had the first person that you see in the whole movie as being Jimmy Jam. And he picks up the phone, says something like, you know, yeah, I got him right here. And he hands the phone to Morris. And that would have been how the movie started. And he said that that movie is not the movie that got made. His movie was a lot darker. He thought it was a better movie. Um, obviously, we don't know. Um, we, we can't speak to that. But it just, to my mind, how you beat that whole let's go crazy opening like seven or eight minutes. I don't know, but interesting that the the 
original script uh, was was different to that. Um, but Prince would often talk about that this was a great movie for us, for all of us. And Jesse was like, you know, come on, man, truth be told, like, this is your movie, right? This is going to be good for you. And he's like, no, 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 it's going to be good for all of us. And he, he said, like, I'm no nonsense. You know, I'd, I'll, I'll call the spade a spade. I'll, I'll say whatever is true. Uh, and it's like, well, you know, this movie is good for you primarily. Like, it might be good for us, but it's good for you. And then maybe we just take a bit of the shine. He said after Prince dropped his Fabergé egg in, in that studio, um, that Jesse just sort of picked up his amp and left and the next time he sees him is Graffiti Bridge. That's five years later. I think he told the Grammy story again. Uh, didn't add much to that. He said that the equipment that Prince was making records on, up to and including Dirty Mind, was some of the raggediest, like worst equipment that you could get. You know, it was all patched wrong, it was all wired wrong. Yet, there's Prince able to, to get these great songs out of it. And he said, on that very same machinery, Jesse himself recorded Bite the Beat. Jungle Love, The Bird, Ice Cream Castles, uh, The Kid. And it was on that uh, machinery. And he'd, he'd acquired that machinery off Prince. And he had it over in his apartment in Cedar Square West, an 8-track system. Now, at this point, uh, he must have shouted out apartment 1407, because I've got that written down. Um, and that he had neighbours screaming at him. Um, I did look it up, actually. It's That Cedar Square West is now known as Riverside Plaza. The, the apartments are still there. Um, and in some interviews, Jesse has said he was apartment 1408. So I don't know. But it, on the celebration, he shouted out 1407, which was quite funny. Um, because he said, even after Purple Rain, people were like, what are you still living here for? Like, this is the hood, you know? You, surely you've got enough that you don't need to be living in, you know, some hood apartment uh, complex now. But... Jesse said, like, you know, he always kept it real. And obviously he wasn't getting the, the kind of money that Prince was getting off of all of these projects. So he then told or retold the, the story um, about him being out on tour with D'Angelo and what was going on there with, with Prince leaving him the voicemail. Um, this time my notes are slightly different to, to what he said the first time. He said uh, he was on a flight from L.A. to Auckland, then to Wellington, and he's editing a video about vanity. Um, he thought Denise was an incredibly beautiful woman uh, and a beautiful soul and he was doing uh, unreleased songs set to images of, of Denise. And he said that he talked to her in the week that she passed and he called Jamie Shoup, the ex-assistant slash possibly manager uh, from, from those days and he'd said that he thought Denise was dying. And she questioned that, and he said, no, no, she's at peace, but you can tell she's just tired of being ill. Now, he arrives in Australia and New Zealand. Denise passes, and Prince has been at the Sydney Opera House just four days before D'Angelo moves over to Australia. And he said they were then on the Gold Coast of Australia, which is, I believe, the area around Brisbane, uh, up on that northeast coast of, of, of Australia. And he said uh, he has an old 310 number that has followed him everywhere he went. You know, it's like a voicemail number that people can just call and leave messages. And he's had that ever since way back then. And it was on that number that he has this voicemail from, from Prince. Now, this time when he said it, he sort of implied that maybe Prince himself had left the message, um, which doesn't tie with the, the first interview, but, you know, who knows? 
But again, he said, the message was, I love you. I respect you. Do you, man. People you play with are trying to be me, you or Morris. They're not on our level. And that was the wording that he used, uh, that Prince had said to him. He said, the number that was left, he tried to call back, or the number that the message was received from, he tried to call back, but he said Prince must have had like a dozen burner phones, and as soon as he made a call, phone out the window, gone. Um, so he, he just got the, the deadline uh, call when he, when he tried to return the call, but he said he still has the message. So again, he then said the uh, whole opting out story again that he, he didn't want to come to Paisley he changed his mind a few times back and forth he told about the friend who made the clothes uh, Lewis um, who'd made all the clothes for Purple Rain he'd actually reached out to him to have some clothes made for Jesse to wear at the celebration and it was only at that point that he learned out that this friend of his had, had passed away and had told nobody so we have Denise we have uh, Prince dying and then as he's getting ready to do the celebration a few years later is is good friend has died. Jesse said that on the day that Prince passed away he rang Owen Husney. Those of you who are big fans will know who Owen Husney is. Jesse said to him, did you ever expect it would hate you like this? And Owen's response was no, never. But it spoke to how it was it was a premature passing and they were all affected far more than perhaps they thought they would be. He spoke about Morris's ability on the drums but this time name-check some of the tracks that Morris had, had played on. So Controversy, International Lover, the first two Time albums, that's Morris on the drums for all of that, is according to Jesse. Um, he said when he left, he left because, you know, he couldn't be around people that he loved who um, were angry with him or were saying hurtful things. He said when he is in that same situation with his kids and you want to say something hurtful, because you're hurt at the time, something hurtful is going to come out. He said he always checks himself because he, he knows that you can't take that stuff back. You can't take those comments back. Um, and you have to be really careful not to say those things because of that. He made mention that Morris and he were actually called the Nerve, N-E-R-V-E, the Nerve. And it was all the first time album music but it was going to be a, a black version of Hall & Oates, a duo, just him and Morris. He said, but then it became the full-on time project. He said uh, he, in his life, just wanted to play guitar in a bar, and here he is, he's on 8 million records. Uh, in 2017, he was on The Tonight Show, and he gets a shout-out because he's performing with Chromio, but he gets Chromio featuring... Jesse Johnson and you know he said it's it's a blessing to have had the career that he's had now at this point he said something that was actually quite controversial in the room um, and he hadn't said it in the first time that I'd heard him speak but he said he was lucky there were people who were better than him he also said you know Prince was lucky there were better people than Prince to which the entire room just started to murmur and talk amongst themselves I think everybody just saying the same thing, which is, you know, no way. Like, Prince was next generation, right? There's next level. There's who is better than he? And that really got the entire audience slightly offside with Jesse after what had been 30 minutes of him just pouring his heart out, really speaking from his soul. Um, 
and it did not go down well. And I thought that was quite a controversial thing and, and very few people picked up on that. Um, in the media outside, they'd all reported the first bit, you know, he hurt me to my soul. But I thought that came off a little greasy, as, as my old pal uh, Mike Dean would say. You know, it didn't, it didn't sit well. And then he finished it and got everybody back on side. Um, unintentionally, I think, you know, he, but I think we needed him to get us back on side before he finished speaking. Um, I could feel the change in the room. But he spot, started to speak to how Prince was around his daughters. And that Prince was really good around kids. Um, he thought that Prince would have been a great father. That he saw Prince around Kirk's kids. And uh, again, the same. You know, he was, he was a natural and really, really caring around children. And he said that two things really saddened him. One was that Prince had died alone. And that Prince had died without children. And he said the, the death saddened him but the other two things that he was alone without children saddened him more and then they basically wrapped up the interview uh, he said you know sorry for boring you he spoke a little bit more about his daughters stealing his jewelry and uh, he likened this to a therapy basically um, and that was and that was Jesse Johnson they were the the two interview panels that Jesse gave and that's that's my notes and my content from, from what he gave. Wow. So <laughs> if you've stayed with me, thank you. That's, that's great. I hope uh, there was information in there that you hadn't heard, that hadn't come out in any other way. Um, I hope that you, you got a lot from that. Um, as I said earlier on, uh, there was a meal break that followed Jesse Johnson. Um, then Jesse played a concert. Now, I can't really go into too much detail about his set list on the, the, the concert. I'm sure other people have reported that. Um, what I will say about his performance, I think he's a very talented guy, um, but there were parts of that performance that kept it from being anything other than good for me. Uh, first thing was there was no real continuity to it. He had a lot of issues with his guitar. He was forever stepping off stage to get the guitar working. When he would finish a song, it wouldn't segue or flow into the next song in any way. He would just move on, finish, get ready, and then start the next song. And there was a lot of lost momentum I, I found from that. And the other thing that I, I, I could appreciate is guitar work. I think he's a really good guitarist. But I think he has a, a, an irritating habit these days, or certainly now, in his guitar playing that I couldn't get over. And when a song was finished and you could hear the band considered that song to be finished and they would finish their contribution he would often go off into you know 12 bars of mad soloing and guitar uh, histrionics and, and going through scales and, and riffs and things and it just became tedious after every song finished he would then and he would go off doing these like you know effects and pedals and things and it just really didn't need it to then have that song finish eventually and then a pause and then another song would start um, at the end of his performances he, he said exactly the same thing both times uh, thank you for listening to me I'm really glad I came and this has been cheaper than therapy for me and I think really that's what everybody took away from from Jesse Johnson on day one of the celebration that this really was therapy it's therapeutic 
um, he treated us like he was laying down on a, on a, a shrink's couch. And he just, he took one question from Andrew Swenson in the first session that I saw, and he took one question in the second session that I saw. And then he just spoke for 30 minutes. He was pouring out his heart. He was healing by, by giving voice to these thoughts. And it was really, really amazing to, to, to witness. It, it stayed with me, you know, a few weeks after we've all come home now and, and we're all back to our lives. I still think about some of the things that he'd said and reading through my notes, you know, it brings back a lot of these emotions that, you know, this guy really bared his soul. He was brutally honest. And my own opinion of, of some of the stuff he said, like Prince badmouthing him around town to the point where he would, he would take contracts away from him. I mean, that's real behavior by Prince. I mean, that's nasty shit. And there's Jesse with kids to feed. And Prince has got plenty of money by this time. You know, he's he's got millions of dollars in the bank. He's just bankrolled uh, Purple Rain. He's, he's now a megastar off the back of Purple Rain. It's like, give the guy a break here, you know? Uh, you don't need to be that insecure. You don't need to be that frightened that this guy could come and take some of your shine away. Um, and I feel for Jesse because they look, even to this day, you, you could describe them as siblings. Same with Andre Simone. There's just something about them where they all have a look of each other. And Jesse couldn't ever shake that. He's always going to look like a guy who's impersonating Prince. He can play guitar. Yeah, he can play all the instruments in the studio. We can't play them as well as Prince. And for me, that that's already a hurdle that Jesse has to jump. You don't need to go putting up bigger hurdles and walls in front of him so that he can't make a living. For him to have done what he's done with his career is a real testimony to the integrity of the man that he's, he's been able to earn a living in, in a tough industry. Um, and full credit to him. I can only thank him for the honesty and the amount of integrity that he spoke to. And it was... That, that one day paid for the entire celebration. I said it to Michael Dean straight afterwards uh, as we were having a chat. You know, that day paid for itself with Jesse's honesty. Little did I know that days two, three, and four would have some unbelievable insights and were equally great, great days. So days two, three, and four had some great items in there as well some great great content i just want to end this episode i know it's been long and i appreciate you sticking with me but let's just finish off day one with a quick word about shelby j at the capri now i'd been to the capri uh earlier in the week the day before um done the self-guided tour had met quite a few of the guys uh, graham uh, charles at uh, at capri they were great with me um when I arrived for Shelby J, they were actually waiting for me to make sure that I got in without missing too much of the second performance. And I'd, I'd hot-footed it straight down from Paisley after after uh, Jesse's final performance. Uh, Shelby had already done one show at the Capri. All funds that were raised were going to the Capri to help with their extension plans. And when I arrived, the guys ushered me straight through. It was amazing, you know. Uh, I'd, I'd chatted with them the day before, but they'd, they'd made a point to really look out for me. So they got me in. Uh, I think I'd missed one or two songs uh, by Shelby, but she hadn't been on long. Uh, set list, I believe, was a lot more structured for the first uh, performance that she'd done that evening. The second one, 
it didn't take long for it to descend into people just shouting out requests. Um, there were a lot of great people in the audience. There were Prince's family with her. Um, Kirk was there. Donna Grantis, Renato Neto, Ida Nielsen. Um, so not only did Shelby start doing shout outs from the audience, the, you know, the requests, but towards the end, Ida, Donna and Renato all got up on stage and took over the instruments. Um, Renato had a lot of sound issues with the keyboard. Don't know what was going on there, but he was playing like a demon, but nothing was being broadcast to the house. Uh, Ida was either on the bass. Donna was heavily, heavily pregnant. And Donna, you know, was ready to, to, to drop at any moment. And yet just strapped the guitar around the side of her baby bump and played uh, musicology brilliantly well. Um, Shelby had a great time. She was, she is such an infectious personality. She, she just radiates positivity. I love her for that. Um, she has a great voice. Of course she does. Um, she sang her heart out. She, you can, you can really hear the songs that speak to her. And then she gives, I don't know how, but 110% on those songs. But it was a, a great venue, a great evening. I was lucky enough to win the raffle uh, that she had put as, as part of her tickets. So I got a small gift bag with a t-shirt, a copy of her album and some stickers. Uh, and I sent that to a good friend of mine over in, in Switzerland who was unable to come to the celebration this year. So that was a, a good gift for Nadia. Um, and that was the end of day one. I'm going to leave it there because these, these could go really long. I've got three days more to speak to you about and then some sort of a wrap up and, and things for next year. Uh, thank you very much for, for sticking with me. We've got lots more to come. I hope that you're finding this interesting that you'll find the rest of what's to come interesting. Um, if you like my top, Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, show your love next time you're over in, in Minnesota. Get yourself down to the Arboretum. The previous video I was wearing a First Avenue t-shirt, you can buy them on the First Avenue, on the First Avenue website. I'll put their address up for, for all of this. You can find me at Purple Celebration. You can email me if there's any questions that you want me to answer. And thank you very much for your time. I'll see you for day two, episode three.